Let's read. First Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. After that passage, the apostles heal some people, proclaim the gospel. And then we see another summary in Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as there were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words have come to us through the apostles' teaching. And these are not dead words. Your scriptures are alive. And where your spirit is and where your spirit is at work, as people read your scriptures, we come alive. And so we pray now for that work to be done. Amen. You know, paper currency in the United States, for the young ones, that's like paper money. Um, Paper currency used to be much simpler in design and far easier to, to counterfeit. Today, the technology in a $20 bill is, is, is so crazy, it's almost impossible to counterfeit it. But I heard that when our paper currency used to be of the old kind, agents underwent training so that they could spot the counterfeit currency as, it, as they inspected it. And so, yes, as part of the training, they studied different ways in which counterfeiters got certain parts of the bill of the, of the bills wrong. But what interests me so much, though, and is, is where most of the attention was paid and how they were trained. Instead of looking at lots of different counterfeit bills, trying to figure out the myriads of different ways uh, counterfeiters could get it wrong, the trainers spent most of their time with genuine bills, holding them, touching them, looking at them, investigating perhaps even smelling them. See, it's in the great familiarity with the genuine that you can more easily spot the counterfeit, right? This is what these passages we just read do for us. They hold up for us the genuine so we can get a great familiarity with what constitutes a genuine Christian fellowship. 
And so today we will study Luke's words and we will both be challenged and encouraged. Challenged because there's no way that we can meditate upon these, wor- upon these words and see the vibrant life of this early church and somehow conclude, well, we've made it. <laughs> Grace Presbyterian Church, God has brought us a long way in these 12 and a half years since we began our public worship. But I'm convinced that he has far much more, more for us to do for Christ in his kingdom. These words are a challenge, but they're also an encouragement. Our second passage ends with Luke introducing a character who will show up again later. His name is Joseph, but just like as Jesus gave his disciples nicknames, uh, the apostles gave him a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Not only did Barnabas sell a parcel of land for the support and work of the church, later we read that he actually traveled with Paul on his very first missionary journey. The Anglican scholar N.T. Wright says that um, Luke includes these two summaries, and he points us to characters like Barnabas, Barnabas to, to help us get a sense of what following Jesus looks like. I don't know about you, but I need that help. And so this morning, with fresh eyes and grace-filled hearts, let us investigate together the genuine. And listen, not so we can lament and say, if only we could go back there. That's what some Christians, if only we could go back there. No, but so that we can cry out, God, give us the grace and the power to live this way now here at Grace Church. Sermon is titled Together, Devoted, Believing, and we will divide our time there. First, Together. In genuine Christianity, there is genuine togetherness. We see it in our text, first in chapter 2, verse 44. And all who believed were together. And in verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Togetherness is central to the church. Why? Because togetherness is what the gospel is all about. The gospel at its core brings togetherness. First vertically with us and God and then horizontally with each other. The gospel first makes a peace for you that brings you and God together. Paul summarizes it in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He comes and he gets us and cleans us up. So the gospel provides us with a vertical togetherness, but we must also not neglect the horizontal togetherness. The gospel unites us together as the body of Christ, and Christ is our head. And so, Grace Church, we are not a club that gathers because we enjoy model trains. We are together because only the gospel can unite such different people as us all around the world. In the book of Acts, we see that the newly reconstituted people of God are no longer a nation where God meets with them in a temple, a physical temple. But now the people of God are what the church, the spirit of God brings us together and now comes to dwell in us richly as the body of Christ. And so... The gospel brings us together with God, and it brings us together as God's people, the church. Now, the gospel doesn't just make us the church. Listen, the gospel makes it so that we can 
be the church. How so? You see, my friends, only when we know how much grace we have received from God are we able to live with grace towards each other. Peter asked that question that we've all asked, uh, how many times, Jesus? I mean, how many times must I forgive my brother's sins? Surely, Lord, seven times is enough. Sounds like a holy number to me, Jesus. And Jesus replied, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' point isn't that we keep track up to 490. None of us can keep track past nine, let alone 49 or 490. Jesus' point is this. Don't even bother to count. Instead, always offer grace to your brother and sister. That's a challenge, isn't it? But it's the gospel that allows this to happen for us. Because you see, right after Peter's famous question of Jesus, Jesus tells a story. He's like, well, I guess it's time I break out this story. Let me tell you the story of the unmerciful servant. You guys remember that story? In the story, a master wishes to settle his accounts with his servants that had borrowed money from him. And one servant owed such a huge amount, but the master did what? Graciously, mercifully, canceled the debt. But then what did that servant do? He went out and found other people who owed him significantly less. And he got angry with them, and he threw them into jail. Jesus says this, that in the kingdom of heaven, his people are to see how God has shown us his infinite mercy and grace. And therefore, we are to live with each other with mercy and grace. And so this is how you and I are ever to be together. And not just together physically. We can come together physically quite well. But, but Luke describes it as what? As one heart and soul, spirit. There are countless churches that gather together but are not truly together. I think mostly it's because Christians tend to forget the gospel. We forget how messed up we are. We forget how much grace we need each day. And therefore, we tend to withhold grace from others. Do you see that in your life? I know I see it in mine. Let us remind ourselves, Grace Church, that God's grace has not only saved us, but it unites us together. And that all of us have been saved by the same God, the same gospel, the same grace. And so we belong together. Therefore, let us live as one heart and soul. So Luke shows us that the church, that this portrait of this church on the wall, that they were together. He also shows us that they were devoted Luke points out four important areas of devotion. Understand this. These four areas of devotion, they're not the only four things that Christians are to do. But listen, if we neglect one of the four, we will be deficient in some way in everything we do. Do you see these areas in verse 42? You can, uh, in your bulletin, not the Bible, unless it's your own Bible, uh, you can underline them. Uh, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were devoted. 
First, we see they're devoted to the apostles' teachings. What's the apostles' teachings? Why are they devoted to it, and why should we be? Well, the apostle, with a capital A, they were the 12 disciples, minus Judas, plus his replacement, Matthias, and later Paul, an apostle of an uh, unusual birth, as he describes it. The apostles were those who walked with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, were discipled by Jesus, prepared by Jesus. Lynn read earlier in, in, the, in the first verses that, that Jesus spent time with them after his resurrection, 40 days meeting with them, going over everything. Here's what you're to say to my people, that they may truly know me in a genuine way. And guess what? There's this daunting work of this infant church. And here's the words that are going to guide them. And so those 3,000 new converts hung on every word of the apostles. See, the words of the apostles are just as authoritative as Jesus' own words to those converts. And the apostles' teaching, which now we have written down in our New Testament scriptures, have that same authority for us, the church, do they not? Now, contrary to what many moderns like to believe, the Bible isn't a man-made document. Here's how Peter describes Scripture and how it came to be. After talk, he says, and, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, Knowing this, first of all, listen, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own mind or interpretation. And he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, the apostles, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying the apostles Peter saying, we apostles, we were there. And the words we've been taught, we've written down. They're not our own, but it's God speaking through us to you. As we were carried along by the very same spirit of God that you have in you as you read the scriptures. Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to the word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place. Oh, how true, right? Think about it. This world we live in is a dark place. Long Island, where, where millions of our neighbors live, it's a, it's a dark place. It's a dark world, which is, which is why we need to get excited about one of our vision goals, which is to plant churches on Long Island. The Bible is alive. God gives us light and life in his words. And the more we meditate upon it, the more we grow in Christ-likeness. Remember, remember our church's motto. It's on the front of your bulletin. Our motto is alive in Christ. As we meditate upon the words of God, we become more alive in Christ. And so listen, we cannot be a healthy, thriving church and lack devotion to the word of God. So they, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, Often when we Christians hear the word fellowship, we think warm, fuzzy hangout time, right? As Kent Hughes writes, he says, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It is not punch and cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in a church hall. Fellowship comes, listen, through giving 
True fellowship costs. Think about that. True fellowship costs. It, it involves a connectedness that is much deeper than cookies and coffee. To know somebody closely as a fellow Christian, that, that can be costly. To listen to them describe what they described to you last week and the week before. Uh, horrible events in their lives and, and you pour out your soul with them. That's, a, that's costly. We also see that this picture in the early church is one of a costly given up of one's possession for the sake of the body at large. Listen, the church is really one big family. The resources of the family are, are kept in one, one place. And then if one family member is hurting or lacking, everyone else is there to, to give and to care. Does that make sense? Now, fellowship is costly, but we often don't get it. So Kent Hughes continues. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they've never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or small group with an eye for only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and they go away saying there is no fellowship there. The truth is, we will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. Now, does that challenge you deeply? Do we not tend to come to church to get, but not to give? Luke shows us that it was because of their devotion to the fellowship that the early Christians held loosely to their material possessions. In, in chapter 2, verse 45, we read, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had, had need. It's like if you open up Facebook Marketplace, you're like, wow, these Christians are selling all their stuff. Man, what a deal, right? Okay. Listen, this is not a call to communism. It's not. Some people are like, oh, we got to just sell everything and live in one big... We need to live right here. We need bigger bathrooms and some showers. <laughs> Understand this. This isn't Christians selling their primary homes, and now they walk the streets homeless. How do we know that's not the case? Because we just read, and they meet in each other's homes. How is that possible, right? What appears to be happening is that they sold extra property they possessed. Things they owned. Which is why we read Barnabas had a field that he sold and he brought it, the money from selling the field to the apostles' feet. I think some of you are probably silently thinking, whew, Pastor Mark, thank you. Boy, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that we had to live and give in such a sacrificial way that it, that it actually cost me. Maybe I have to sell my home. Hold on, that's not the point. Let's not get carried away. Understand this. I think when you understand what's really going on here, you're going to say, oh, my word. And you're going to look at that portrait on the wall of those early Christians and say, thank you. If only I could be as generous. Listen to what's going on. Here's what's happening. The Christians who sold property were selling not just an extra economic asset, like an old car, right? This is more like 
grandpa who passed away, his stock portfolio that he gave to you, that you're earning a generous income off of every year. But actually, it's something far more spectacular. Think about this. They were selling the promised land and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet so that the kingdom could go around the world. Think about it. These fields, they were parceled out over a thousand years before when Joshua entered into the promised land and all the, every tribe got their own parcel of land. And someone got a little extra piece of land in Jesus' day. And this is the promised land. This is, this, none of us here own promised land. I can guarantee you that. But they were glad to sell it and to lay it at the apostles' feet. They gladly gave away their land of promise. Now, Luke hangs that family portrait on the wall for us to point to our kids and say, see our great ancestor Barnabas, he sold his promised land for Jesus' sake. And guess what? Mommy and Daddy do that too. Think about it. Which begs the question, what inheritance are we holding tightly to? What earthly treasure have we placed our family name on and declared promised land? And we cannot lay it at the feet of Christ. There's got to be some things. What are they for you? I told you this would be challenging. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and they devoted themselves to the, to the breaking of bread. Now, Luke's phrase, the breaking of bread, is an early Palestinian name for the Lord's Supper. Fifty days earlier, remember, at the Passover in that upper room, Jesus broke bread with those disciples. And there, Jesus, he held up the bread. He said, do this in remembrance of me, right? So he's expecting the church to keep on doing it. Later, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. who had some problems, as you recall. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every time they gathered together in worship. Today, some churches hardly ever celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think partly it's, it's a pushback against the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. If you're here, you're Roman Catholic. I'm not here to bash you. But the truth is there's some grave things that are inaccurate with the Roman Catholic understanding of communion. They teach that as the priest prays over the elements that the, that the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus. And the wine literally becomes his blood, which means a horrible thing. It means each time on what they call the altar, every Sunday we're bringing Jesus down again and sacrificing him over again, whereas scripture tells us that Jesus is a once and for all sacrifice for sin. The Roman Catholic Church also teaches that, that when you receive communion in a worthy way, you're saved by it. Until you screw up, and then you have to come back next week. <laughs> There's a reason why we had a Protestant Reformation. Reformation, the Lord's Supper is one of those reasons. 
But then again, Christians can tend to get the Lord's Supper wrong in another way. Often what happened during the Protestant Reformation was the pendulum swung, but to an equal and opposite direction. Now today, many Christians believe that there is no divine benefit whatsoever for God's people in the breaking of the bread. That Jesus in no way is present together with us, nourishing us. The Lord's Supper is what we call a sacrament. It's given to us by Christ. We have two of them, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Sacrament, a sacrament, functions as what? Both a sign and a seal. A sign does what? Points us to truth. The sign of the supper says God sent his son to live and to die and to rise for our salvation. And we believe this. It points us to that. But Lord's Supper is more than a sign. It is a seal as well. Consider in the ancient days, a king would send a, a letter to an ambassador with truth in it. Uh, and, and he would fold it up and then he would put pour hot wax on it. And he would take his signet ring and press it in. And it would seal that document um, for those who receive it. In a similar manner, the Lord's Supper, listen, seals to us as believers... What the sign actually says is true. It brings it and presses it into us. And so when taken in a worthy manner of faith, Christ is present not just physically but, but spiritually. And he mysteriously and mystically nourishes us as we partake of the supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace that spiritually nourishes us in our weakness. It's amazing, right? It means that this, that this meal cannot simply be an empty ritual. Oh, the joy of it, to, to gather each week together of one soul, uh, one mind, and as one body to feed on Christ. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and they were devoted to the prayers. You notice Luke says the prayers, not simply prayer. Likely he's referring to set times of prayer. The church had set times when they would gather and pray, likely at the temple, until, of course, they got all the Christians got kicked out. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, just keep reading in the book of Acts. You'll see what happens. In her article on prayer, Megan Hill describes how prayer is the invisible work of the church. She says that you, you can go to church's website and you can click on those tabs and you can find out what the pastor looks like. You can, you can find out what ministries they have and what their statement of faith is. But there's no tab there that reveals the invisible work of the church, the prayer. True, isn't it? I wonder if you were really to somehow to tap on that. Grace Presbyterian Church, by the way, gracehamptons.org. If you were to tap on there and there was a prayer and it really revealed the depths and the sincerity and the zeal of our prayer, what would it say? She links prayer to thriving, though it's hard work. Listen, here's what she says. To stoke my enthusiasm for the mundane items on my daily to-do list, I have to remind myself that they are, in fact, valuable. If my children do not eat, they will not thrive. 
If I do not make repeated phone calls, I will have to pay an inflated medical bill. Similarly, the church needs to remind herself that the difficult, invisible, and countercultural task of corporate prayer is the work that upholds everything else we do. If we do not pray, we do not thrive. James, the brother of Jesus, in, in his epistle wrote, you do not have, why? Because you do not ask. And then he went on because you often ask with wrong motives. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, on your own passion. Consider all the good things that we don't have because we haven't asked for them. Consider all the times we ask wrongly so that we can advance our own kingdom instead of God's. Earlier, we read aloud the Lord's Prayer. Remember this. The Lord's Prayer isn't my Father who art in heaven. Give me my daily bread. Forgive my debts. Deliver me from evil. No, the Lord's Prayer is not first person singular. It's first person plural. We pray together with each other on our minds, right? Give us our daily bread. I care for so-and-so and so-and-so who's going through a hard time. Give us our daily bread. We plead for others ahead of ourselves, and we pray according to God's will. We pray kingdom prayers. You know, every first Sunday of the month, we gather after the worship service for a time of prayer. I encourage you. It's next Sunday. It's the first <laughs> on Advent. Uh, would you consider being a part of that? You can just sit there and add your, silently add your voice to whoever's praying. But prayer is the, the silent work of the church on which everything else hangs. So the other church was together. They were devoted, and they were also believing. We're almost there, folks. Chapter 2, verse 44. And all who believed worked together and had all things in common. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. My friends, at the center of the church is belief. It's faith. Remember when the disciples were rowing in that boat? Jesus wasn't with them. It's this big, giant storm. Uh, but then all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on water, and then um, Peter steps out and walks on water. Well, briefly. <laughs> it didn't quite all work out for him. Remember how Peter stepped out of the boat. Here's what happened. They see Jesus. Peter answered to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Wow. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and, and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he said, he, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got back in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat did what? Worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. What boldness of faith. Would you have stepped out of that boat? Certainly not with that cell phone in your pocket, right? But... And yet Peter, Peter did so. 
And, and we see that he took his eyes off of Jesus and he saw the wind instead and he started to sink. And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, come on, Jesus, cut me some slack. Why are you all up in my face? You didn't see anybody else get out of the boat, let alone walk on water. I got five steps. That's pretty amazing. Understand this. Jesus wasn't diminishing the faith Peter had. He was saying, you should have had more. You know me. You know what I can do. You know what you can do when you focus on me, Peter. And it's true. So often we doubt. Instead of seeing Christ, focusing on him, we, we see our seemingly dire circumstances. And we become wrapped up in our circumstances. We stop focusing on Christ and his kingdom and his church. And so our vision is hampered. And our goals become small, non-faith-stretching goals. Things that you and I can't obtain without Jesus even being involved. Grace Church, Jesus isn't literally asking us to go walk on water with him. Okay? But don't think for a second that his vision for us is anything so small that we can do it without him. Without our focus on him, believing in him, following after him. Grace Church, our vision is printed on the back of your bulletins, along with our, our accompanying vision goals. It's on the front, rather. Our vision is to see Long Island awaken to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not just the East End. It's all of Long Island. I don't know about you, that's a pretty big goal. We cannot do it unless our faith is stretched. Stretched in such a way that we cry out in believing prayer. And we begin to give with a costly commitment to the fellowship. Genuine, joyful sacrifice. Only then, as we live with this deep devotion, we'll begin to see churches planted and a counseling center birthed on the East End. And yes, perhaps even that Christian retreat center where people can invite their not-yet-believing friends into this home where there's a wonderful host family that has hospitality and cares for them and, and helps answer their questions about Jesus. And people come to faith in Christ through something so simple as a retreat center on the East End of Long Island. My friends, it's a big vision. Only God can do it as we believe in him and press on in faith. And so may we pray that great prayer that we see in the Bible. We believe, Lord, help us with our unbelief. Such is the Christian life. So we looked at the portraits on the wall of the early church. We've seen the body of Christ was together, devoted, and believing. I want to wrap up with just a couple points of emphasis. When we look at that ancient church and see her in perfection and in glory, a number of thoughts and emotions can come upon us. In a negative way, we can, we can lament and point fingers and say, if only so-and-so wasn't here. If only so-and-so was a better, kinder, smarter, fill-in-the-blank kind of leader. Oh, just see where we would go. We would be like them. Or we can continue to think that church togetherness is, is, is in devotion, is, is optional for the Christian. So maybe you're listening online at home or, or, or you're someone who pops into a worship service 
uh, every now and then. And you wonder where the body life is. Perhaps for you, fellowship is all about the get and not the give. And because you haven't given costly to the fellowship, you're not experiencing the joy of the fellowship. Or another response is we can look at that portrait and lament and feel shame that our experience of the church is not like that ancient church and give up. We can never get there. It's a pipe dream. Don't even try. Or, or we could cry out for what that ancient church had that God gladly supplied them. In chapter 4, verse 33, Luke writes what? That there was great power. Why? Because of a singular focus and because of a provision of great grace. The singular focus was what? Verse 33, the apostles' testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. You know something? The apostles, when they went around meeting people, they didn't mention if Jesus wore Nike or Under Armour, right? Or if he drank at Starbucks, you know, he got his coffee there or Dunkin' Donuts. You never see mention of whether he even liked fish on Friday, right? No, their repeated message was that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah of God. He died on the cross for your sins. And guess what? He's resurrected and coming again. Meet a new person. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah of God. He died for your sins and resurrected, and he's coming again. That was the message. Their focus was on Christ and the power of his resurrection. There was also a singular focus. Um, there was also what along with the singular focus? In verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. I mean, think about it. What a marvelous statement. And great grace was upon them all. This is no meager tidbit. <laughs> My dog Gus, when you cook on, this, on the stove, like something with oil, like oil will splatter onto the floor. And my dog literally comes and licks the little drop of oil off the dirty floor. That's not what we see here. Great grace. The reason they were together and devoted and believing was because God's grace has rained down upon them from heaven. Great grace was upon them all and they lived with constant awe at the work God was doing amongst them. Grace Church, understand this. God has not changed. Think about that. Nor has his Holy Spirit in any way diminished. His power is not lacking. His kingdom vision for this world has not somehow been revised downward. Nor has his grace upon his people been reduced in the slightest. And so as we gather in a few moments for the breaking of the bread, let us be challenged by, by Luke's portrait of the, of, the, of the early church. And as we're challenged, let us also be encouraged by the grace of God that, that this, at this meal, it's both a sign and seal of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And may we, 
as we repent, perhaps we feel a sense of ownership of perhaps our lack of togetherness. As we repent together for any lack of togetherness, may we be reminded at this table there is mercy and grace to connect us. And for our lack of devotion at this table, there is mercy and grace to change our hearts. And for our lack of believing, there is mercy and grace to cause us to believe. Let's pray. Father, once again, your word to us is utterly astounding. Just a, a few words of black text on, a, on white sheets of paper are so tremendous, so life-giving, such joy-instilling words. How could they not be alive? And how by your spirit dwelling in us can we not come alive in these words? We pray that just in the moment, we're not praying for tomorrow or the next. We're praying right now, Father in heaven, that these words would dwell in us richly, that we would own them, that we would delight in them, and, that, and that, that as we gather together, we would be genuine as we live out this grace and this gospel together, we pray. Amen.